0: Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing Not Without Laughter by Langston Hughes. Hey, Chelsea.
1: Hi, Sarah. How are you
0: feeling today? Oof. (laughs) Not 100%. I won't lie to you and our listeners. (laughs) How are you feeling today?
1: A a little bit better than you are, I think. I was where you are now last week. So I'm on week two of the sinus ick. So
0: solidarity. I have a lot to look forward to, it sounds like.
1: (laughs) Solidarity to everyone out there who is just running into all kinds of germs this season.
0: Yes. So if we are if our voices and our brains are a little bit raspy and foggy today, mm-hmm. we apologize and we thank you for bearing with us, but we we couldn't push this off any longer. We wanted to talk about this book. We want to get this episode out to you. Um so yeah. Here oh, are we Sarah, are. Sarah,
1: I'm 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 really eager to talk about this book with you. Um, I'm going to share a really quick summary just for anyone who is listening to this episode before they read the book or if they need a little refresher. And then I'm so eager to hear what your sort of general reading experience was like. So this is Not Without Laughter. It is Langston Hughes' 1930 novel, and it's the story of a young boy, Sandy Rogers, coming of age and growing up in a small town in Kansas with his matriarchal family. So he lives with his mother Angie, who works as a maid and a cook for a wealthy white family, his grandmother Hager, who takes in laundry work, and his aunt Harriet, who has these big dreams of performing. He also has a wandering father, Jim Boy, who makes appearances here and there, as does his upper-class Tempe. As a collective, these characters reveal varied philosophies and histories of the Black diasporic experience. So we also have friends and neighbors who enter in and out of the narrative, but the story really is about Sandy and his family. So do you want to add anything, Sarah, or just get into
0: whether I want to hear just whether or not you like the book? Yeah. I Okay. I liked the book. I will say that I think I like it more the longer I sit with it. And I liked it more too throughout my reading experience. I I think for my first few chapters, I was just like, oh, this is going to be a little bit of a slog. And I was a little bit disappointed in, in that um, because I love Harlem Renaissance literature. I hadn't read any prose by Langston Hughes. And the the story starts with like a big storm and mo- mo- fo- focuses on Aunt Hager and Sandy for those first few chapters and kind of helps us get our bearings in this town and this family. But I didn't think, the writing wasn't like leaping off the page to me in the way I thought it would at the beginning. I was like, oh, Langston Hughes describing a storm is going to be amazing. And it, to me, it like wasn't as amazing as I thought. I, I, I know I'm really selling this book really well. Right <laughs> <laughs> but then as soon as Jim Boy shows up and the plot kind mm-hmm. of does pick up, um, not that it's a particularly plotty book, but as soon as Jim Boy shows up, I felt like the book just totally took a turn. The writing like started totally singing I, and almost literally like the the way he writes about music and dancing and the urgency that these younger characters feel is amazing and um I don't know Jim boy wasn't my favorite character, but it just felt like it took his arrival in this household in this family to kind of shake loose the story and get me interested more and from then on, I really liked it and then like I said the longer I've been sitting with it, the more kind of special I think it is. How about you? I've really liked it too. This book has a lot of structural things
1: that I like. It's a story told over the course of many years and many seasons. And I always like seasonal changes throughout a story and sort of seeing how that matches up with the characters' lives it also reads very vignette-like. So it's not, this isn't a story of interconnected short stories or scenes by any means. There is a narrative arc, mostly with Sandy's coming of age. But each chapter really does kind of read as its own unit. I think you could pluck them out and read them separately and they would feel like you're reading a scene in its entirety. And I often like that, especially in classic literature. So it was, it was definitely set up for me to really enjoy it. And then I, I really liked, so one of the articles that I read in prep for this episode, R. Baxter Miller is the professor who wrote it. And I think that he put it really well. He says that this novel is plotless and one of the critiques at the time when it came out, because so many scholars were focused on form, was that this story was sort of formless. Um, but our Baxter Miller says the characters reveal the action. There isn't really a plot, but the characters are revealing the action. And it's really just following the lives of this, this family unit. And I really liked that. I, I wouldn't say it was something that I like, didn't feel like I could put down because I wanted to find out what happened next to them, but I like a story that I can kind of dip in and out of and see where these people are and how they've grown and what's changing with them. So I liked that kind of like quiet, plotless, character-driven aspect to this book.
0: I liked that too. I think maybe I could have used a little bit more of a connective thread between some of the jumps and sections. Um, There are maybe like some scenes that I wish I had the opportunity to see kind of between one section and the next. Um, But I completely agree that I really like the way that it's focused on these characters, on this family. And one thing that I thought was very impressive was the way the way he manages to have conversations about po- politics and racial politics and the characters' views on race in a way that feels felt to me very natural like he um and and the characters weren't like standing in for like allegorically various ways of thinking but they all had nuanced and different views of like how they should be moving through this world and interacting with other Black folks or with the white people in their community. And I think that the characters both drove the action then and also some of the themes in a way that felt really true and nuanced. Yeah, I was so impressed with how Langston Hughes is zoomed
1: in on this tiny little community In Kansas, small town Kansas. And yet, because of the character's different philosophies and their various pasts and uh, social standing in the community, it really, he paints this beautiful picture of Black communities across the entire country and Black history and philosophy in exactly like you said in a way that doesn't feel forced at all it doesn't feel like oh this is this person is just representing this philosophy for for all people i i thought that was really impressive i'm wondering if there are any characters that you found most compelling or that like you were excited when they were on the page or that you keep thinking about after reading
0: you know I, that's a really interesting question because i don't I don't know that there is one character who I really resonated with. Not, not. I mean, in a way of, like, I relate to them, but just who, like, stood out to me as the most vibrant. What, what sticks out to me is the way various characters resonated against each other um, or in tandem with each other. So, I mean, like... I, I I thought that Harriet's kind of uh, refusal of her mother's religion was really compelling and Aunt Hager's devoutness was really compelling. But what was most compelling was seeing them on the page together and the tension that that brought out. Or, you know, even though we don't see Tem- Tempe on the page with many of the characters, her her views – and her, you know, her kind of more classist uh, views in um, relation to those of the rest of her family, which just really interesting to me. I will say this is kind of an anti-answer to your question. I wanted a little bit more of Sandy. Like I felt like Sandy, especially in the child years, I couldn't really figure out what kind of little boy he was like he was a good he was a good perspective for us to be able to view his family with but but i wanted to know more about him in those early years but yeah i i thought they were all really vibrant no one like sticks out as like this character is the star of the show for me how about you i would agree i i think that tensions between them
1: i would have even liked to see pulled out even more Totally for even <laughs> more a lot conflict, of this
0: book I feel like i i I really liked and I just wanted a little bit more mm-hmm. um but I sometimes that's like a that's a good not a good problem, but that means he's doing a lot right, yeah, and
1: sandy I know we talked about how the characters feel fully formed and like they're not standing in for any one philosophy, but Sandy is really just I think standing in. As observer and sponge and he's just sort of like taking everything in around him and soaking it all in so we can sort of see everything through sandy's eyes and i think the fact that he's as a little boy not necessarily displaying any strong personality or preferences for one person in his family or another allows us as the reader to just take it all in with him and not hold judgment for it. I, I don't think that Langston Hughes is being completely neutral about every single philosophy that's shared. Um, it seems like he feels pretty strongly about the value of education, for example. And of course, we just know from Langston Hughes' biography, he loves the blues. Um, and so that like love of music comes through in culture. Um, but we get... Sandy as this observer and just like the fact that he's just soaking all of this in and internalizing it and will make his own way in the world out of all of these philosophies from these strong, different women in his family, um, I think is really interesting. And we don't necessarily see how he does that either. The book kind of ends like on not a cliffhanger, but like it just it just ends in a way that we know he's going to move forward in the world in some way. And we don't necessarily know how internalizing all of those different experiences from around him will play out in the rest of his life.
0: Yeah. I really like the way you said that. And and I think that the way you're talking about that just kind of makes me think that there is maybe a preference in the book for a, not even a balance, but a like Taking the best from like all of these um these views, like you said, the value of education, but interestingly, like it's not the characters who are heavily prioritizing education who are the ones who introduce him to music and art and culture, and so he's like getting that right from from other people in his life and how it's all so essential to where he ends up, which is, as you said, we don't see the full, you know, trajectory of his life.
1: Yeah. I, as, as I was reading, again, this article, I will link in show notes. It's from JSTOR. You can access it very easily. But this scholar was talking about the key theme of home throughout the novel, and It takes on this really unique meaning. I think when you think about Hughes himself, who traveled quite a bit, and his characters who in various ways experienced displacement. So we have some characters like Sandy's grandmother, who was enslaved and through the Great Migration, and after she was freed, was able to move farther north to Kansas. We have a uh, gym boy who travels all over to find work, and so he's constantly sort of changing jobs and homes. And Sandy is displaced as well. He ends up having to go live with Aunt Tempe for a while, and then um, towards the end of the book, like we said, he's he's in a new place. So there's a lot of displacement. But it felt like a very homey book to me, and so I am curious to hear some of your thoughts on home and that sort of sense of home, the history that was threaded throughout this book, or just any other thematic elements that really stood out to you, Sarah?
0: I'm really glad you brought this idea of home. I'm not sure I would have, without this prompting, thought of that as one of the main themes of this book, but I definitely see it. You're right. It does feel homey. I think that having a place to return to seems essential for all of the characters, even the most, um, wandering characters like Jim Boyd needs that. that, Like that's why he chose Angie as his wife, right? Was he knew she was never going to leave this town that changes as the book goes on, but, um, he wanted a home to return to. And with Angie as his wife, he felt like that he would have that. I think that, you know, with Harriet, as she she leaves, she kind of misses that, right? She doesn't have that stable place to return to. So I think that home, in many ways, doesn't necessarily seem like it has to be the place you stay, but a place of, like, safe landing to come back to. Um, I also think maybe the book sees home a bit as being amongst people who kind of accept you <laughs> and you know each of our our characters like we said disagrees about a lot and finds more feelings of home with people who um who accept their their views on on things I think that shared culture
1: we see especially in the scene where Jim boy is in the backyard and he's playing music and it's just like it It brings everyone together in a really special way. So even Hager, who is begging him to play something other than the blues or other than this popular music and wants him to play hymns, is drawn by the music. And Harriet um, experiences music in this way. The dancing scenes, I think, are really significant. There's a revival going on in one part of town where movement and singing and joy is experienced in one way. And then there's this dance marathon going on in the other part of town where movement and joy and worship, and actually in the pages, Hughes makes parallels between them about like the religious experiences that are being had at either of these places. And there is that kind of tension between like past and present. Um, But it, it just seems like this community through storytelling, through music, through art, through dance is able to just have those common threads, which, which of course, when we are, I feel like when we read, especially Harlem Renaissance literature, and we get to have this window into the beautiful tapestry of Black culture, we get to see that and we get to see what, what a miracle it is. That despite separations and um, horrors, a, a group of people was able to have all of these like beautiful ties together, and so it's really lovely. I think the way Hughes displays that in this novel, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I certainly think that there are black readers who could put words to the experience of reading this, in, in a much more eloquent way than I can.
0: Yeah, the the vibrancy of these the community and the sub-communities is really powerful. And I I think that there's a lot of kind of collapsing of things and juxtaposition that is happening in this book that I really appreciated. I, I think I, as I've been sitting with this book, I've been wondering if it would be a good book to teach. And I really think it would be, I think because of all of the variety of experience it it brings to its story. I think because it isn't ultimately like a very a particularly tragic story, which I think often in the uh, books by black authors that we bring into the classroom are um, understandably, so, but i I think that, I, I think that would be a reason to bring this one into the classroom is it's not that. Um, but one thing that I felt like the book kind of collapsed and juxtaposed for me was time. Like like you said, Aunt Hager is formerly enslaved. And then we see, you know, Jim Boy goes off to fight in World War One. And just that collapsing of time between like the late 19th and early 20th centuries, like through from like reconstruction into the modern era, I think is really powerful and not the way in America we are taught or study history or literature. It's kind of like the 19th century feels so old and like everything that happened then was so long ago. And then we get into without that that bridging of the gap, and the way it made slavery and Reconstruction feel so much closer to modernity, I think was really powerful. And and certainly, like I don't think that's what Hughes was trying to do. He was just writing about his like time period. But as a reader in twenty twenty three, that's what it helped me see, and I found that pretty powerful.
1: I think that was so well put, Sarah. And yeah, I think as a contemporary reader, it, like you said, collapsing time, but it it's not that time is collapsed. It's right. Just <laughs> it, it opens your eyes, especially if you sat in history class and experienced that um, that compartmentalization of time periods in history. Uh, yeah, (laughs) absolutely eye-opening. I also just, I kept uh, thinking to myself, the conversations that the characters are having in this book, the family tensions that are arising are the same ones that we experience today. Um, We have colorism, we have generational tensions about modernity and um, you know, more conservative ways of living. We have class and respectability politics. We have religion and Christianity specifically. And we, we see that not just, I mean, represented in like media conversations or, um, our daily lives, but in today's literature. And so obviously like choosing pairings for this book, there was a wealth of, of options, but, um, I don't know I, it's every time we read Harlem Renaissance literature i'm I'm struck by how modern it feels
0: yeah this this one did feel particularly modern. I think we said that about passing as well. so you're right. like it seems to be something about Harlem Renaissance literature really resonates today. Um, and i I love when we read a classic that is less like commercially popular. And still feels like so in conversation with today's books because it just makes me wonder. I'm like, how did this happen? Like, are a lot of writers reading this and I don't know it, which I love? Or is it like that the ideas are just so essential um, that, and style is so essential that we're seeing these connections? All right, Sarah, I want to wrap up our analysis.
1: By sharing a passage from page 190. And this is where the title of the book is in the book. Don't you love when that happens when you're like yes. reading and you come across <laughs> the title? I love it um, so much. And I think, you know, not without laughter, it's it's a striking title to me. Um, and so I was sort of paying close attention to where, where did this come from? So um, pardon the raspy voice, but I will read a little bit of, of this passage so that we can kind of see where the title ties into some themes of this book. So this is when Sandy is working in the barbershop and um, he's talking, or the, the narrator here is talking about how arguments would begin and um, just sort of these men who would like out brag each other and yell at each other. And it would create such a racket. And Hughes writes, to the uninitiated, it would seem that a fight was imminent, but underneath, all was good-natured and friendly, and through and above everything went laughter. No matter how belligerent or lewd their talk was, or how sordid the tales they told of dangerous pleasures and strange perversities, these Black men laughed. That must be the reason, thought Sandy, why poverty-stricken old Negroes like old Dan Givens lived so long, because to them, no matter how hard life might be, it was not without laughter.
0: So good. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see his like his poetry kind of come through there just in hearing the rhythm of it as you read it aloud, Chelsea. And I I think that this kind of connects with one of my ideas about why this might be a good one to teach is because, yeah, the book itself is not without joy. Um, I would, you know, I I didn't think there were very many humorous parts in this book. Like I, I wasn't chuckling, but maybe that's my own context. But the book is certainly not without joy and beauty. Um, And I love him bringing that to the foreground of the kind of ideas and philosophies of the story as he's observing the people around him, um, him being Sandy. Um, And then I like the way Hughes seems to weave that into the story itself. I didn't listen to this on audio. Me neither I think
1: that if I would have some more of that humor would have come across, particularly in the passages with dialect um, where I think someone's voice would really lend the emotion and sort of that um, like sassy uh, humor um, in in the audiobook and so I would be really curious to hear from readers who might have listened to this one to see if Definitely. that did come across. But one of the things I think, as we are thinking about how this does tie to Langston Hughes' poetry, which we're reading a little bit of in Patreon for J-Term, it's just like, it's it's bonus. You didn't, if you read with us and you read Not Without Laughter, don't worry, that's what the focus of today is on. But uh, as we're thinking and talking about Langston Hughes' poetry and how his voice and common themes sort of go from fiction to poetry, I do think that um, passage reveals some of that, but, but also, um, Langston Hughes is one of the most iconic writers of the diaspora. And so what we mean by that is, um, just like this global sense of the black community where enslaved Africans, were taken, brought to America, and so we have African Americans. But there's this global connection. Um and there's this sense this displacement doesn't remove that connection. Hughes writes beautifully in his poetry about this. Um think about The Negro Speaks of Rivers. Um and how he writes about the Nile and and sort of these bodies of water where memories are held and this this ancient knowledge. I think that he does the same in this book in a really stunning and yet much smaller scale way. Um, and I really did. Certain passages are beautiful and are poetic. Um, but seeing how he writes the theme, um, these themes in prose versus in poetry, I I think that would be fabulous to bring into the classroom as well. So I can see where you're going with this, Sarah.
0: I would love to hear from anyone who does teach it, who has, has taught it, how that, how that goes. I, I just, I think it could be a good one. It's also, it's like not a super long read. Like you said, the vignettes, you can kind of dip in and out a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one. I'm so glad we decided to read it for the podcast. And I, um, Yeah, I I like being able to put it in conversation with the poetry for sure. And as you mentioned, it was so fun to pick pairings for this because it felt so true
1: to now. Okay, Sarah, so excited to hear about your pairings. What is the first one that you're going to pair with Not Without Laughter?
0: Okay, my first book is Parish by LaToya Watkins. And this came out just last year in 2022. And this is a multi-generational story about a black family in Texas and um it starts with um with the 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 woman who becomes the matriarch of the family when she is young she's a teenager she's her name is Helen Jean and she is finding herself faced with an unwanted pregnancy and you learn about the um you know the kind of horrors that in her life that resulted in this pregnancy early in the book. There are a lot of trigger warnings for this one. So know yourself, check those out before picking this up. She is trying to get rid of the pregnancy, but she's unsuccessful. And so she decides she knows what she needs to do. Somebody, uh, a man in the town who she's not particularly interested in, but is interested in her has um, proposed marriage. She's going to accept. That's what she has to do. And then it jumps forward in time to her granddaughter who desperately wants to be a mother and is struggling to conceive. And she is she gets a phone call that her grandmother, Helen Jean, this matriarch, is on her deathbed basically, and she gets called back to, to be with her. So then we just kind of like go back and forth in time and through the perspectives of various women in this family, and we piece together the family tree the whole puzzle of the the women in in this family the cover of this book is like a tree with all of these roots and i mean that's just kind of the perfect image and metaphor for this book you know there's not much i really want to say about this book plot wise because like not without laughter it is about the people it's about sisters mothers grandmothers how they all interact it's about the secrets that they've kept from each other um who whose views clash against whose it's about themes of faith and class and uh familial and generational trauma just so much that not without laughter is doing i think it would be a perfect pairing and i think that this book um was a little bit under the radar last year. like Not totally. It's not like a hidden gem, but I didn't see it all over. And I think a lot of readers would really like it. It's a great multi-generational saga, really focusing on strong women, um, much like Not Without Laughter, but also much like so many popular books that I know readers in our community love. As I said, there are many content warnings, so be sure to check those out for yourself. But I think this uh, this classic pairs really well with Parish by LaToya Watkins.
1: That one sounds so good. And I'm also, as I'm looking at your list, I'm really glad that you have uh, fiction heavy because I went very nonfiction heavy. Oh, perfect. Pairings. Great.
0: What is your first so, one?
1: Okay. Uh, What order do I want to share these in? The first one is The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. So I'm pairing this one. The subtitle is The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. And I think that this makes a great pairing because we have a lot of religious conversation in this book, but the religious conversation isn't necessarily like about individual faith. It's more about the church at large. So there's a lot of talk of comparison between the white church and how white people worship, versus the the black church that the main characters attend and their form of worship, and sort of the how class is intertwined in in the church, um, and how people um, praise and and all of that is brought up in here. And so church and politics really goes hand in hand, and not without laughter. And so I think The Color of Compromise makes an excellent pairing, If, especially if that intrigues you, whether or not you are a person of, of faith. If you want to investigate that a little bit further, I think that this is a great book to do so. So um, churches today are still largely racially segregated, and they're also just not great at addressing social class, um, on the whole, I think that there is a huge reckoning happening, um, within the American church, but Jamar Tisby, um, this was published in 2019. I think post 2020, the pandemic revealed a lot more of sort of like what is going on, um, in the church and so I think the fact that this was published beforehand is, is particularly revealing. Um, but basically what he does is surveys the, um, racial past of Christianity from ways that the church has worked against racial justice movements to the way that it has worked with ra- racial, justice movements. Um, and just like how centuries and centuries of these tensions have gotten us here today. So, um, like I said, i don't I don't think that you necessarily have to be a person who goes to church in order to appreciate this book. It's got a lot of history in it. But if you are someone who considers yourself um Christian, I do think that knowing this history is really important. And um, I just I think that Hughes, touched on this and there's just so much to dig deeper. So that is The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And I think it's really good on um, audio from what I've heard.
0: Yeah, that sounds like it would deepen and extend a lot of what Hughes touches on in this. So I love that pairing. All right. My next one, also fiction, also came out in 2022, is Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm by Laura Worrell. And um, this book, it's set in um, the 2010s, um, and it follows Circus Palmer, who is in his 40s. He is a jazz musician. He is a trumpet player. He is also a ladies' man. He is a gym boy, in other words. He travels to play his music. Um, It's his life. He has a teenage daughter from a previous relationship who he you know who who he loves and she adores him um her name is Coco but they they mostly have kind of a correspondence relationship at the beginning of the book um he is on vacation with his girlfriend Maggie who is also a musician she's a she's like a badass woman drummer and um Maggie tells him that she's pregnant and then his reaction to that kind of unspools the the story. Um but I I I really I liked this book. Um I didn't love it for one particular reason that I'm just going to get out of the way up front, which is that early in in the book there is like a witnessed relationship, sexual relationship between a teenage student and her teacher. And that just I just can't. That's just one thing that for me I just like can't really read about. So if that's you, I completely see you. I understand, but that's not what the book is about. It's just kind of in, it's kind of in passing. Like, I don't want to hand wave it. I didn't hand wave it, but, um, that's not what the book is about, but it really is about circuses, like, uh, reckoning with his, you know, desire to be a father and a partner to the, the figures and the, the women in his life. Um, But his need, his restlessness, (laughs) so that kind of tension between home and wanderlust, between like music and the stillness that sometimes he craves. I think that the reason this really pairs well, though, with Not Without Laughter is Laura Worrell is great at her descriptions of music and dancing and rhythm and the book often, when it's writing about those things, seems to take on a jazz-like rhythm. And I, I thought she was so good at that. Um, it is a very like, kind of passionate romantic story, uh, very soulful. Um, I, I, at times it felt like a debut. It is a debut, but I'm really excited to see what she does next. And I wish that I had read this. After reading, not without laughter, because I think that I would have liked it more, like to see those connections to to see that conversation happening between these two authors, maybe or between like you know what um what like the the essentialness of music for the community and not without laughter, and then this twenty first century black community in sweet soft plenty rhythm, I think would have been really cool. So I think they're a great pairing. Um, I'd be really curious if anyone picks this up post-reading Not Without Laughter, how you see that conversation happening. So that's Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm by Laura Worrell. I have that one sitting in my FM
1: account, so I'm really glad.
0: So oh, yeah. I'll,
1: I'll bump that up the queue, especially since it's not that long um, since I finished Not Without Laughter.
0: Oh yeah, I'd love to hear. It. And it might be really good on audio. I well, yeah, with what you were saying about the rhythm of the writing,
1: I'm very excited now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Sarah, this next book, we've been like really saving for the right pairing. Like we've mentioned yeah, it's so good. this book yeah. <laughs> um in like multiple conversations about like, okay, well are you going to do this one yet? I don't know. I kind of want to save it. It's The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. And I kind of always guessed that we would pair this book um, with a, a classic Harlem Renaissance novel. Um, I think that what urged me to drop it in this episode as a pairing. Is the structure of Wilkerson's storytelling. So, Isabel Wilkerson, um, brilliant, brilliant um, narrative nonfiction writer um, and researcher. So, she interviewed so many people to put together this book about the history of the Great Migration. Um, but rather than being um, super factual and informational. She uses people's stories to create this this overarching narrative. And so she dips in and out of different pieces of these people's stories to put together sort of a timeline um, of the Great Migration. And then um, just to reveal the human impact of it. So we have these these really compelling stories about individuals, about families, about community, but they're really kind of told vignette style um, and over the course of many years. So we get to see these people um some of them are coming of age stories. They moved when they were really young, escaping horrible situations in the South and then, um, finding different hardships in the North. So I think we have like one character who moved to the East coast to New York city. We have, um, another person who she moved to the Midwest. So we have some stories of her in like Chicago and Milwaukee. And then we have another, man who moved out to California. And so we see these experiences, these very interconnected experiences, but completely different sides of the country um, coming at the the great migration from very different backgrounds and philosophies. Um, Isabel Wilkerson weaves them together really beautifully in a similar way to Langston Hughes in Not Without Laughter, even though he is writing about one specific family. Like we said, he is really revealing this tapestry of experiences in a way that I think Wilkerson does beautifully. Her writing is so good. It is a nonfiction book, but it reads like fiction in the sense that her her narrative voice is so strong. Um, The way she puts the story together is just absolutely stunning. And I think it's just such essential history for understanding a book like Not Without Laughter. Um, that makes so many references to these displacements. So The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, highly recommend paired with many books, but this one I think it fits really well with.
0: Absolutely, completely agree. And definitely, like you said, historical context and does even more of that work of like showing you like how close to this history we really are. Um, so I love that pairing. All right, my last one is also fiction. It is "On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous" by Ocean Vuong, and I just, I, I, this plot-wise is very different from from "Not Without Laughter," and and Ocean Vuong is, um, he is Vietnamese American, um, and so his story is. But very his context is very different from that of a black man writing in the Harlem Renaissance. But like Hughes, he is a poet, and like Hughes, he has profound respect for the women in his life who made him who he is. Now this is this is fiction, but I think inspired um, a bit by his own his own life. It is a fictional letter from a son um, who goes by little dog um, to his mother. And it's just a, a story that kind of where he's bearing his soul to his mother in the first time, for the first time um, in many respects, even though he also sees his mother as the person who is like closest to him and knows him the, the best. It's got a lot in it, of course, about race and class, little dog, uh, reveals his sexuality in this in this letter, and that is explored as well. Um, and there's there's a lot about generational trauma in this book, but there also is there are joyful moments. Um, I would say this book is challenging to read, both in terms of some of the content and in terms of the writing. It's extremely literary, extremely poetic. But I think that's another reason, even though it's more challenging to read than Hughes, that it pairs well with him because it's a, another example of a poet exploring the themes that m- matter to him in a new form. Um, and so, I, I really, I think, I think for that reason, it's a, it's a great pairing, and it's just a very powerful and profound book. So that's "On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous" by Ocean Vuong. All right, my last pairing here, Sarah. Have you read A Little Devil in America? Not yet, but
1: I really want to. It's really, really good. Um, I'm like halfway okay. through it right now, but it is okay. like p- pairing perfection with this book. All right, so author is a poet. Perfectly fitting. Hanif Abdurraqib wrote mm-hmm. A Little Devil in America. Um, subtitle is Notes and Praise of Black Performance. My favorite niche subgenre is memoir and essays that ties the author's personal experience and story to pop culture. And that is exactly what abdur Kiev is doing in this book. And specifically, like in the first couple of chapters, he's talking about dance marathons. And I couldn't help but think of the fabulous dance hall scenes from Not Without Laughter. And then um, Abdurakiba is writing about Aretha Franklin and her performances. So this is about music and dance and performance um, and just how these things tie a culture together and his coming of age through that lens. So we get stories of him as a young kid in Ohio watching Soul Train um, and just like sort of see him. Um, grow up in in these pop culture references. And so I don't know what else to say about <laughs> this book. It's, it's just amazingly well written. Like I said, he's a poet, so there are sort of um, interspersed poetic paragraphs um, among this book here, um, among the sort of collections and the history and and you can just tell he he watched a lot of footage <laughs> to write with such love and joy and exuberance and also like deep sorrow and pain about many of these historic performances. Um, the book is dedicated to Josephine Baker. I also, so in Not Without Laughter, we talked a little bit about Harriet, but I do think that her, I would I would love to like, Read a, a sequel just about her life, right? Like a spin-off about Harriet. Oh, totally.
0: Yeah. Everything we don't get. Yeah, to
1: she she's off the page for the majority of the of the book. But we know she joins a minstrel show and then she leaves the circus. She leaves this minstrel show um, and she ends up being a sex worker. And then she goes from that and she goes back to performing, and then she's traveling all around being a singer. Like she has this really um frightening and fascinating backstory. And she finds success. So like by the end of the novel, she is successful. I I think that her story of success as a singer is is not the only only example. Um Hanifa Abdurrakib shares some stories of, of similar, um, experiences and it's, it's just such a good book. I mean, the, aside from the parallels of, we have a poet writing these stories, just like with such love for black culture and performance in the same way that Hughes loves the blues and just like loves writing about music and does so, so rhythmically and beautifully. Um, Aside from those parallels, I think there are a lot of thematic parallels and just like bits and pieces and nuggets to pick up from this. I would, I mean, I highly recommend A Little Devil in America, regardless um, of its pairing status here. It's just so good, but I think it is a perfect pairing.
0: Okay. Well, it sounds fantastic. And I think we should wrap up because now I just want to go. I just (laughs) finished Spare. And I'm looking for my next object. Oh, so I'm gonna download this. And this is gonna be my next listen. So thank you so much. I'm so glad you paired that no one. No problem. I assume he probably
1: reads it too, which is amazing. All the yeah. better. Yeah. Good. Okay, Sarah. I I love these pairings. I stocked up my TBR here. Um same over yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope that our listeners did as well. And yeah, we'll end the episode there. We have some exciting announcements for all of you. In case you missed it, in our last episode, we shared what we are reading for the spring semester. We're reading classic children's literature. Sarah, I know that you are kind of nervous about this as a theme, but everyone is
0: so eager to I get know. started. I feel like this was both my idea and I was like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we should do it. Yeah, I'm so excited about how excited everyone else is.
1: Okay, so in your podcast feed, we will have episodes on Classic Kidlit. And in our Patreon community, we will be sharing classes and events all about classic children's literature. It's going to be so fun. So our Patreon Classics Club, this is our community where we share bonus episodes and book talk. Um, But mostly, we're just learning to read more deeply more thoroughly more critically and to be better readers together of classic and contemporary literature so we love discussing books and reading with all of you we hope that you'll join our group of nerdy readers at patreon.com slash novel pairings we have annual subscriptions available at a (laughs) discount hi lou um and every now and then our cute babies pop up so are you feeling? Um, She looks good. She looks happier than (laughs) the picture you sent me the other day.
0: Oh, my gosh. Totally. Yeah. Um, All right. Um, I don't know if you just said this, so I'll say it again just in case. Uh, We love discussing books and reading with all of you, and we hope you'll join our group of nerdy readers at patreon.com slash novel pairings we also have annual subscriptions available for announcements and important updates from us. Subscribe to our Substack with the link in our show notes and follow novel pairings pod on Instagram. Thank you so much for
1: writing sweet reviews for our show. In the new year, we could really use some new reviews to boost novel pairings in the Apple podcast algorithm, so if you can take the time just to write a quick little blurb about why you love listening to novel pairings, that would be hugely helpful for us. Thank you so much to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we will be back to talk about children's classic literature with you. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.